Malcolm Honline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us for the weekly update on this Friday, Erev Shabbos. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. Good to be with you. You know, in addition to the Yom HaDin, in addition to the uh, you know the personal holiday that, uh, that Rosh Hashanah is between man and God, there's a big national element as well uh, to the Rosh Hashanah holiday. I would hope that our rabbis will use this opportunity on Monday and Tuesday to speak about uh, the national direction that we are going in, the importance of uh, national topics like the state of Israel to our people. It would be good to, to sort of balance it out on Rosh Hashanah. Would you agree? Well, in Yana Diyama, I've always been in a long tradition of the Jewish people, relevant topics that, uh, while we talk on a spiritual level and a loftier level, on the Yom Naraim, on the high holidays, still the, the uh, relevance and bringing the message, especially at a time like this, is really critical. And let's hope that, in fact, those messages come across in a very positive way. By the way, you know, I, I always turn to you when it's not necessarily a Jewish item, but I'm fascinated by the political science behind it. Uh, is there any benefit, in your opinion, to anonymously submitting an op-ed to the New York Times if, in fact, one is on the inside of the White House administration? Yes, you don't get fired. <laughs> <laughs> no, I meant is there, I, 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 I didn't mean if there's a benefit to do it anonymously. I meant is there any benefit to bring this to the attention of the American people? Well, I guess if somebody feels uh, so motivated to um, uh, and concerned about what is happening, but frankly, uh, it would be far more integrous, I think, and, and, and meaningful if they would sign and resign and show that they're willing to pay a price for what they believe, but to, to do it anonymously, and it's something, of course, the New York Times will love. Uh, I think uh, compromises and, and, you know, now the speculation and the discussion has nothing to do with what the content of the article was yeah. or the, the op-ed, yeah. but rather who's the author. Yeah. And everywhere I went in yesterday and even the night before in phone calls, um, people I met from the administration and others, uh, everybody had a different idea, different direction, and it promised that it puts so many people under suspicion and puts, you know, that, that cabinet members immediately rush to put out statements saying, it's not me. Right. You, know, that, you, you must have heard some doozies. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, I wasn't there. I was, I was away that day. No, I'm not blaming I, I you. I'm, I'm, I'm right. saying you must have heard some interesting theories, to say the least. No, I know that what you were referring to. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, you know, it's not a funny matter. It exposes to the world, you know, the, the presidency. But I can understand why somebody who feels that there's a dangerous trend or something and, and incapable of changing it. I just think that it's a... Um, it would it would give it much more clarity um, if they did it in, in a way. But also, is that person working in the administration to undermine right. the president of the United States? That's a frightening thought. You know, it's uh, that, that's why that's my my question was. You know, is there a benefit to releasing this op-ed? In other words, I get it that there might be people in the White House protecting Americans and all of us in the world from the president. Okay, you know that might be happening. But is there a benefit to letting us know that? I, I just don't. I don't understand that. But uh, so that was why. Well, I asked. there is if they want to to mobilize, you know, public opinion. Look, we 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 pay tribute to to dissidents all over the world who stand up against their regimes. Right. But 
those are usually regimes where you don't have freedom of speech, where you don't have the ability to otherwise uh, protest or dissent. Right. Yeah, I get that. All right, and one last thing before we move into the news of the day regarding Israel and the Jewish world. This is obviously the Jewish world, and that is that uh, uh, you've always said, and we always reiterated, especially on Erev Rosh Hashanah, which today almost is, and that is don't take security in your uh, religious institutions for granted. At the minimum, make plans, and certainly, even more than that, be in touch with your local uh, law enforcement, because a good relationship with your local police department can go a long way in different situations. It's true, and especially uh, for those who are in the New York area, New Jersey, the, many of the police departments, and certainly the NYPD, they were, they had the planning, and they do an annual event where many people come, and uh, they discuss the preparations right. and the special deployments that take place, and the... Um, uh, knowing the name and knowing the con- and having a contact at a local precinct can be really critical, and you don't want to have to start doing that if, God forbid, there's some emergency or immediate need. And it's, the people can go to the Scan Cure Community Network website, and I think it's scnus.org, and and they have uh, advice and instructions on steps that can be taken. But this is not something that should be just done before the holidays, although that's a higher visibility period, but year-round. All right, good message. And obviously, folks, remember, it's the last time we'll be speaking to you before Rosh Hashanah, so if there is something that can be done at the last minute to secure that type of relationship or connection, it should be done ASAP. All right, Iran's rial fell to a record low of 150000 to the dollar this past Wednesday. Uh, speaking of coups or overturning governments, as we said last week, and I pointed this out and you agreed, uh, o- often this type of um, of economic situation will in fact lead to some type of uh, you know uh, of grassroots revolution. Anything different this week with this statistic out than last? Yes, that it's it's, it's dropped further this week wow. and has been a steady decline. It's um, a message about the impact of the sanctions. To a large degree, although this uh, began already uh, before the, the, the latest round of sanctions were announced uh, a year ago, I think the real was about thirty thousand to the dollar, and about uh, thirty years ago it was seventy to a dollar. But the the decline at this rate, I mean, it, it reminds one of Venezuela mm-hmm. that the economy isn't collapsed today. This week, the the Japanese announced that they're not going to buy any more uh, oil from from Iran, even though about 5% of their oil comes from there and about 40% from Saudi Arabia. Still, it was a major uh, element in, in Iran's public position that they still traded with Japan and they, they do with China. Uh, but not, their ships won't take it. The Chinese sh- uh, ships won't take it anymore, so they used Iranian ships to buy it. But also major banks this week pulled out and they are losing all the aspects and access to any international markets because they can't get insurance, they can't get shipping, they don't have the banks, and the major airlines are are pulling out. And while Turkey, while Iran can survive uh, for a while, the fact is that unemployment is soaring. The the their basic needs are often not available in some places, and that the dissident movements. The Basiji, who are these extremist elements uh, in the uh, around all around Iran, but who report to the uh, supreme leader 
and it's a, it's a sort of separate entity that uh, often uh, in days past they would drive around on motorcycles and with chains and just whip anybody who was not dressed properly or whom to whom they want to, who they accused of anything and they had free reign uh, recently they were not going in their own cities or going to other cities because they were facing retribution. Now they announced that they're going to be putting out tens and tens of thousands of Basiji troops in the streets. They call them special forces, but they're, they're not. These are, are essentially domestic terrorists who will be uh, riding around, who will be patrolling, who will be present in the cities to prevent the demonstrations. So it tells you that they're really impacting the government. The government is... is uh, is afraid of it, and the um, and the, that the unrest in the country is very serious. So the, the, you see that the um, uh, the impact, I think, of the sanctions from those who said that you know to the closing the JCPOA, pulling out of it, would yield a little results. The fact is that it's devastating in European com- countries who have promised all sorts of assistance and alternatives, it's all failed. Nothing is coming of it. And I think the, the, uh, we should watch this very carefully because the internal dissension and disruptions at a time when Iran is, is trying to expand its role, especially in Syria where this missile factory, a surface-to-surface missile factory, and in the last week uh, pictures of the Iranians shipping missiles into Iraq emerged. Um, intelligence pictures. So this is, uh, uh, you know, Iran continues to play an expansive role today, as, as we speak, actually. The leaders of Iran, Russia, and Turkey are meeting, and essentially the focus will be about Idlib and the battle in uh, in Syria, where Russia and Iran are, are, for, are already bombing uh, the cities, and Turkey wants restraints and, and has special interests there and because they're battling the Kurds and those forces. Is, is there such a thing as a strong government in that type of economic situation? Like, I'm trying to think of, like, pre-World War II governments who, because of the horrible economy, it looked like, and especially because of, of scapegoats that they were able to cite, it looked like they had more of a hold and more of a secure position among the people. Is that is, is Iran's government teetering because of the situation or or because the people have nowhere else to turn, they're even stronger than they were? Well, it can't go both ways because when when a government uh, like in Turkey, their currency is also in free fall, and the economy hurt, uh, but the the uh, people are rallying around Erdogan. Right. Uh, there is a, there is a large dissident element, but the uh, and and will grow, I think. But the, his his he has a, an extremist ideology to it, which they find appealing, and uh, often. When they feel that there's an outside enemy, people rally around their government. The difference here is that this has been going on for a long time, that the Supreme Leader does not in- enjoy an increasing support. It's decreasing. And the uh, Iranians know what democracy is, and, and they had experienced it uh, with Mossadegh and, and in the past. So th- th- this is not a-, a comparable situation to, let's say, Turkey, but you saw in Venezuela, where the government of full collapse, you know, which cracks down, uh, you know, lawlessness is ran. The 
society is in, in free, complete collapse, law and order in collapse, and millions of people leaving the country. So that's the more likely model. Right. And, and I we, think... know, we know, by the way, people leaving Iran as well. And that's legally or illegally? No, they can, people can leave, but they have you know the border with Azerbaijan. There are other ways that they can try to get out. Can the few Jews leave, uh, leave Iran if they wanted to? They can. The problem is they can't get into the United States, where most of them have family and want to come because of the immigration restrictions are being processed. Can they get to the U.S. You know, via a different route if they spend? It's, it's not a different route. Uh, you know, for instance, most go through Austria. The Austrians won't let them come until they have permission to go to the United States because they don't want them staying, you know, for six months a year in, and in decreasing economic conditions um, in in Vienna. So they're willing to let them come and to move on in a reasonable period. But right now, people, several hundred Jews who had applied for visas, have been sitting on their suitcases in Tehran, and obviously others are not going to apply if that's the circumstance. And uh, for those listeners wondering about going directly to Israel, of course, that would be impossible. Um, oh, I really don't want to discuss that. And uh, and, if they, and and there's no there's no other Arab country I could spend time in, like Jordan, etc. Before heading to Israel, they would not work. None of those systems would work. Correct. Well, first of all, if they want to come to the United States as refugees, they have to come directly here. Uh, but, yeah, but I what do about, think that, yeah. that if those if they wanted to go to Israel, there are ways that they could do that. Hmm. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard on listener-sponsored digital radio around the world. The web at NachumSegal.com on the NachumSegal Network and, of course, on the beloved NSN app. Malcolm Holmlines with us. He's executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Is the Labor Party in England going to ever get things straight? Whether they, in fact, want Israel to be declared as racist or whether they uh, agree with the worldwide definition of anti-Semitism? Uh, well, they did reject the call to declare Israel a racist state or Israel's creation a racist act, which was Corbyn's uh, platform. They adopted the universal definition of anti-Semitism that was done, and he obviously was not supportive of that because he himself is uh, you know, defined clearly under all definitions as an anti-Semite. Uh, I met this week with the leader of the British Jewish community, and frankly, it's a pretty frightening tale. And as I, I feel that uh, Europe is burning, it's something you know that for 10 years on the show we talked about, and he acknowledged it and said for many years Malcolm Warren doesn't kept saying it, and we, we didn't listen, we rejected it. And now they have a very difficult circumstance. And this is Great Britain, which thought it was protected by the English Channel from the scourge of anti-Semitism in in Europe, uh, all over Europe. And the um, uh, so Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party, which today is at about 40-40 with the, uh, the Conservatives, and the, there's no election until 2022, but there are local elections, there'll be others. And, and the very fact that his anti-Semitism is not enough reason to kick him out. Tony Blair, the former prime minister, labor prime minister, and even more importantly, Gordon Brown, I would say, uh, made very strong statements this week uh, about the need to, for the Labor Party to, to take clear and, and decisive steps. And every day there's another revelation about Corbyn saying this is not something that was based on an incident or somebody could say he misspoke or misinterpreted some event. 
I mean, constantly there are all of these manifestations and, and go back many years that is hostility to Israel that crosses into anti-Semitism uh, has, been, has been known and, and evident. And the message here as well, that we have people who are getting elected or will be elected in, in the upcoming elections across the country <clears throat> that uh, manifest very hostile views, are anti-Israel in some cases, and even anti-Semites, we, we have clarity when we talk, look at Britain from thousands of miles away, and sometimes it's harder to see it here. Europe is, smol- is, is burning, but America is smoldering. And the, the potential danger here uh, should be evident to people that we can't wait until somebody is a candidate or, or put in a position because the opposition didn't run or because they, they have no opponent in the, in the general election. We have to root them out and identify people who are hostile or anti-Semitic, anti-racist, who are anti-racist or, anti, or bigots or anti-anything that have to be identified at the very start that they not get elected, that they not be put in a position where they can sprint into Congress, where they have a platform and a bully pulpit to espouse their hateful views, pro-BDS, pro-other things that are, um, I, I think, of, uh, of great concern. You know, with the uh, primary day right around the corner and a, obviously a keen eye of the entire country on, uh, on the midterm election day, uh, both those nights are going to be very interesting vis-a-vis what you're referring to now. It's going to be interesting to see who gets in, and it's going to be interesting to see how the Jewish community reacts when the wrong people get in, frankly. Yeah, but once they're in, it's it's right. uh, Agree. after the fact. Agree. We have to, my point is we have to prevent it before. Yeah. Now what you're saying is right, that the responsibility doesn't end with an election. It'll begin with the election. Yeah, but I'm saying that to we're going to monitor re- them, to, right. to pressure them, to educate them, to hopefully see that their, their views are... are not based upon uh, an animosity, but based upon uh, ignorance or lack of information. But the evidence is to the contrary, that even people who have been offered opportunities, who have expressed these kind of views, people running even in the, in the elections in our own districts, um, have not been receptive to, to information or education yeah my point being that a lot of people will just wake up on election night that uh, that's what i'm mm-hmm. saying i know you agree with that um all right so uh, the united states president donald trump is encouraging jewish leaders and rabbis to remain optimistic in the new year on the prospects of peace between israelis and palestinians speaking with them briefly by phone to mark rosh hashanah we're going to be able to get it done he said we did something that i now understand why so many presidents before me didn't do they would campaign. They were always going to talk. They were always talking about Jerusalem and the embassy, and it was all very beautiful, and everybody was happy, and then they never did it. I'd say, you'll get money, but we're not paying you until we make a deal. If we don't make a deal, we're not paying, and that's going to have a little impact. I assume the money he's referring to is Palestinian aid, and until a deal is made, he's saying, in theory, he's willing or ready to hold back those funds. Am I right that that's what he was talking about? Yes, but he, he was saying that uh, it's not even a deal. They have to negotiate. Abbas, he says, is attacking us, criticizing us all the time, and we're giving them money. Right. We've given them billions and billions of dollars, and he, they're pointing out what have we gotten. And the, the actions taken against UNRWA, which is long overdue because everybody agrees that it's a corrupt operation, the, the, the real number of, of the original Palestinian refugees 
first generation, is about 30,000 people who can qualify under most accepted definitions. People all over the world who are refugees, their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren aren't considered refugees receiving aid. The UNHCR, the High Commissioner on Refugees, serves all the refugees around the world with a staff of 7,000. UNRWA has a staff of 30,000 and serving just the Palestinians. And there are agencies in the UN that are just propaganda machines spending millions of dollars against Israel. There are other, the Article 7 in, in when it comes to the Human Rights Council, etc. But here, nobody is saying they don't want to see basic needs met for the refugees. But you don't make it an institution. It, it deprives in the Palestinians of incentive to to build new lives, to be at the, and also because they weren't absorbed in the countries, and and were restricted in Lebanon, Palestinians can't get most jobs. They're not allowed to work in most fields. In Syria, they were discriminated against, and in all of the countries, not absorbed because they wanted to use them as political pawns. So the the um, uh, you know this has become a corrupt major industry, in which countless billions of dollars. And then you had the UNRWA institutions used for incitement. You have so many charges against UNRWA and many people who have been long screaming and yelling, and we have taken this position that it should have been addressed a long time ago. The administration made a decision, and and, um, Ambassador Haley clearly uh, enunciated it and the reasons for it. So it's not because they're indifferent to, to the need. It's saying that this is a corrupt institution, and it's just perpetuating... Uh, the dependency of the Palestinians, so for them it's not a good thing. And I think the you know saying that they would find other routes, perhaps to to give humanitarian aid, uh, is important. But giving money to Gaza to, to Hamas, continuing all of these uh, sham operations, seeing the money diverted either po- people's pockets or to terrorist activities, it's going to end. And by the way, I think that you know he, he reviewed. The pre- I heard I was on the call with the president. And he reviewed uh, some of his actions over the past year, and the the um, obviously the Jerusalem embassy loomed very large. Right, rightfully they so. About expanding the building and, and wow, other uh, things that it'll be double the size uh, within the year. I think Ambassador Friedman or the president said, um, but he, he extolled the work of of his peace team, which is right, and to to talk about the. Uh, some of the accomplishments, you look, it's, it's legitimate, legitimate to criticize the president, as every president. Uh, I, I think some of the characterizations that I saw of the, of the call were not uh, accurate. Um, you know, he took only two questions, and they were clearly prearranged. Right. But so did other presidents. I mean, it's not... <laughs> it's, it's not so, unusual. Huh? Such, a, such an unusual thing. On the Abbas... Although some did take more open. Right. On the Abbas thing for a second, did he just reject the possibility of meeting with President Trump during the U.N. session? Absolutely. said he's not going to meet with him until he fires the team and... and uh, Meaning until Trump fires his team. Right. <laughs> I mean... That in and of itself is a, is a message, is an indication. Well, that is part of what the president was was referring to. Right. And he has no interest in meeting him. Um, and, and then, Abbas, speaking of Abbas, then Abbas resented the fact that Israel was directly negotiating with Hamas or through Egypt with Hamas regarding right. what's well, happening. The Egyptians have given up this week on the Hamas-Fatah reconciliation talks. Uh, one of the stories that got... Very little attention given, I think, its significance, but 
not surprisingly, um, is that, that leaders of Hamas admitted that there was no march of return, that this is all staged because they were uh, to, was meant to avoid an internal explosion in Gaza where the forces were turning against each other after the breakdown with the Palestinians, then they stopped paying the salaries, and et cetera, and the economic conditions there uh, diminished, so that they organized this as a diversion, something we said many times uh, about it, and this is, uh, and the riots are continuing, the kites are continuing to fly, to fly overnight, the Israelis eliminated a, were attacked a, a battalion of the um, kite flyers, and People should not dismiss the amount of damage they've done. It's, it's very significant. So the um, um, that was the what was behind the announcement. Right. Uh, we've given we've given the rabbis a lot of material to discuss on Rosh Hashanah. A lot of updates they can give their congregation. And they should talk about the good news and see that all the good things that that have happened in the past year. I saw that Moody's raised Israel's standing. That. Uh, there was a report of that so far, or that in nineteen in twenty eighteen, there will be four billion dollars of investment, foreign investment in Israeli startups. Uh, that the amount of money continues. That uh, uh, when SodaStream got bought by Pepsi for three point two billion dollars for all of those who, who were behind the BDS movement and targeted SodaStream, uh, and uh, and what's her name? I think Scarlett Johansson, who did the pro. Right. SodaStream advertisements and sympathetic advertisements uh, came under fire. Right. And who lost out now? It was Palestinians who lost. They lost their jobs. They lost the chance of having employment. And the the this is the study of the story. So those who engage in BDS and say it's because of humanitarian concern for the Palestinians, it is a lie. They're not concerned about it. Israel's economically, thank God, very strong. has not been hurt. The, the growth continues. I'm not saying there aren't challenges. There certainly are, and there are internal challenges that have to be addressed uh, in Israel. In the good uh, news department, the prime minister made sure during the, the, the Philippine um, um, officials' visit to Israel to point out they were the only Asian country to vote for the state of Israel, the only Asian country to help. In Israel's creation. In Israel's creation, 1947, and they were the only uh, Asian country to have an open border for Jews during World War II, which I did not know. That uh, is true. They took in uh, I mean, a couple thousand. They offered safe haven uh, to, to some Jews. Uh, look, we were set back with the uh, move of uh, yeah. the Paraguay. Um, What's that under, about? Why'd they do it? Because they have a new president, and uh, he doesn't agree with the policy. Got it. And the, the um, But there is a chance, you know, the man who was stabbed in Brazil, the candidate, is actually very pro Israel announced that if he's elected, he will move the Brazilian embassy, which would be far greater significance, right. but it's also why I told, and, and we said it here, that, you know, we have to be modest in some of our responses to events, right. because, the, you know, the pendulum swings back and forth, and you have a lot of uncertainty. Countries that announced that they would move did not yet move. I'd rather see it done and be quiet about it than make a lot of noise and then be put in a position where they have to try and explain I hope that they won't close the embassy there, though for now the ambassador has been recalled, and we'll have to see what uh, what, what comes of it there. In other words, you might, if you were the Prime Minister of Israel, you might have reserved that action and not called back the ambassador. No, uh, calling back the ambassador, absolutely. But uh, they, they did say that they're going to close the embassy. Uh, Israel doesn't have embassies in every country, and there's a very small Jewish population there to be serviced. 
and they can be serviced from neighboring country. But I, I think I would not yet say that I would close the embassy. Uh, Paraguayans have been supportive of Israel, and uh, under the past, the presidents who just went out was very sympathetic and supportive. Uh, finally, according to foreign reports, Israel's aim in providing weapons and cash to rebel groups in Operation Good Neighbor was to keep troops belonging to Hezbollah in Iran away from Israel's border. Israel reportedly armed and funded at least 12 rebel groups in southern Syria to prevent Iranian-sponsored insurgents affiliated with the, with ISIS from becoming embedded near the Golan, according to a report in Foreign Policy magazine. So it's not just that they are helping refugees and those who are injured along the border. They're using the opportunity, I guess, to be in direct contact with rebel groups and, and make sure to help them secure that border as much as possible. Well, Israel had a relationship with the rebel groups for uh, a while because they kept the border quiet, and Israel allowed them to be near the border as opposed to, let's say, the, the Iranian-backed troops, Hezbollah, the militias, the other groups that Iran brought in, and Israel is very adamant about keeping them away. And the revelation that they had more than 200 strikes against Iranian uh, shipments of weapons or Iranian sites uh, over the... Uh, recent year, and the uh, which is a huge amount when yeah. one thinks about it, and that's what they acknowledge, and they are somewhat limited because of Russians, etc. About what they can hit, but they were all along cooperating and working with them, whether they sent money or sent aid or the training, and certainly the the uh, medical and other uh, support. But the um, that it, it was in everybody's interest that they keep the the border. And the Jordanian border quiet, and have this them the rebels there as a buffer group. Now, as you know, they're not there anymore. And the big showdown will be what happens in Idlib, which is going to be could be a massive bloodbath because of the number of rebel troops. And uh, the, as I said, they already started the bombing, and you know that they're going to saturate. And I was very disturbed by the reports that came from the Iranian Syrian sources that. There are, um, you know, that the rebels are bringing chemical weapons into the area, into Idlib. That could be a cover for their use of chemical weapons so that they can blame it on the other side. I don't have proof of it. I'm just uh, reading the, the headlines and knowing how devious uh, they are That uh, and, and knowing that the Syrian government has used chemical weapons and continues to stockpile and have them, uh, that... It, it may well, we may find out that they used them, and then they will say that it was uh, in the hands of, of the rebel groups and Kurds and others who are in Italy. And uh, Turkey is uh, working against um, the massive attack that is uh, that has already begun. And Russia, as you know, put a lot of ships, I think 12 of their ships, in uh, in the vicinity. It's a massive uh, war game that they did, uh, including air exercises, which is interfering with the flights to Tel Aviv, and the flights had to be diverted or, or changed, the patterns changed or even delayed because of it. So the, the And you have a U.S. Egyptian with things. There are so many things that are going oh on. Oh, my gosh, so many things uh, at I mean, once. I can give you all, <laughs> all of them, but every country in some way or another is involved. And as uh. I said, the, the, Syrian, the Iranian missiles moving into Iraq, the, the you know people because it's not in the daily headlines should not assume that this situation is uh, is diminishing. We also remember that we're coming up in a couple of weeks to to the big UN opening session, right. and President Trump is going to chair the Security Council session dealing with Iran. And Zarif had the 
had the chutzpah to send out a, a tweet or I don't know it was Facebook tweet or something, but uh, he hashtagged it chutzpah for, for the president to come <laughs> to come there. So, and he's the foreign minister, of course, of Iran. The chutzpah that he has, <laughs> and and uh, the Russians are pressing that this special session will deal with the. 2015 resolution, but the very fact that the president himself will chair it, that has been done before, but he's saying that he's doing it because he wants to give a speech about uh, Iran, and Rouhani is expected to, to to speak at the assembly, and Prime Minister Netanyahu will be here uh, as well. Um, His speech is Cholomoyed. During All right. Um, well, as the new year begins, first of all, forgive me. I just realized a minute ago that I missed the VART last night. So I'm sorry about that. But I'm sure it was a beautiful celebration. It so, was great. So mazal tov to I'm, you. And I, ho- I, I hope, you, you know, in the, in the spirit of the new year, I hope you do forgive me. I'm thinking. Okay. So thank you for that. And also, I am assuming and hoping that among your new year's resolutions for 5779, you'd like to continue to address this audience on a weekly basis. Uh, I've been doing it for so many years. I don't know what I would do Friday mornings if I <laughs> if I didn't. And this this uh, coming Yantav, I'll be at the Woodcliffe Lakes for oh. those who will be uh, nice. there or in the area. They'll be hearing all about the Syrian border, and we'll give them then the secrets <laughs> that we can't do on the air. That's right. We'll be sharing with them the and, inside you know, information. All right, Malcolm. Real stuff. A happy, healthy, and sweet New Year to you, and thank and you for all you your too. your hard work and your dedication. It's much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you for. Thank you so much. Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Fridays, the weekly update here at JM and the AM.